Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast centred on a non-dualistic, compassionate uh, view of the Christian faith. My name is Dom Fay. Uh, I am joined by our two regulars. Sue Wilton's back on the podcast. Hello, Sue. Hey, Dom. And uh, Peter Cat joins us as well. Hello, Peter. Hi, Dom. Good to be with you again. Thank you. And our uh, special guest today is uh, an Anglican priest, theologian, and author, Dr. Stephen Ogden joins the podcast. Oh, sorry, I've got that wrong. Stephen Ogden. No, you're doing all right. Ogden is correct? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Ogden. That's Do- it. <laughs> Dr. Stephen Ogden, thank you for your, your time. Uh, now, Stephen, you do have a book uh, recently out last year, The Church Authority and Foucault uh, Imagining the Church as an Open Space of Freedom. That's right. Um, largely where you delve into uh, the relationship between the church and power. Mm. And that, that is kind of where we wanted to, to move today's discussion um, before we get into that, though, could you just give us a bit of, uh, I guess, of your story of, of how you got here? Sure. Well, I uh, started out as a parish priest in Adelaide, had some wonderful experiences of the church there in a parish. Uh, also, I was dean of Adelaide for about eight years in a fantastic, uh, inclusive, uh, energetic uh, Christian community. And then about nine years ago, I was asked by the Archbishop to come up here as principal of St. Francis Theological College which I did for eight years, and then the last 18 months I've gone back to parish life. So I've had a life of um, uh, parish ministry and uh, theological and academic pursuits. I've sort of juggled both of them over the last 30 years, really. Peter, do you remember when you first came across Stephen? Yes, uh, he was the new dean of Adelaide when I was uh, well into my deanship of um, Grafton. So we were both young and we were both young more and more handsome and had, <laughs> and had more hair. <laughs> more hair. Yes. You know, we had a great time as uh, mm. as fellow deans, and uh, it was a, it's a great privilege to have known Stephen all that time. Now, now, Stephen, in this book, obviously, you know, in in the title, um, Michel Foucault's name is mentioned. That's right. Um, a, a very well-known French philosopher. Mm. Um, a lot of this, I imagine, is, is framed in his thoughts on power and um, his views on how that sure. functions in the world. Can you just give us a bit of a, a background of Foucault's uh, thoughts on power and how that does relate to, to the church? Sure. Um, I think most ordinary people grapple with issues of power all the time. If you're working in the university system at the moment, you'll hear uh, academics uh, bemoaning the misuse and use of a power, similarly in hospitals or in uh, government departments. But there's something really strange about the church, as, um, and you only have to read the literature, as though we don't have power problems. We don't have power issues. And so I've wrestled this uh, for a long time. And then about 10 years ago, I, I discovered uh, Foucault through some other reading. And his approach to power was uh, in many ways very subtle and I thought applied brilliantly uh, to the life of the church. Uh, a lot of us as uh, undergraduates many years ago were, brought, were brought up on you know Karl Marx and the ruling class and the poor and uh, that kind of undergraduate analysis of institutions you know bring on the revolution but Foucault's is more subtle and Foucault saw power as like a network like a spider's web and 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 we all fit into that spider's web in some ways and and whilst there are power differentials that is some people have more power than others we still have some power. We still have the right often to, to say no or to resist. So once you start seeing that all of us are enmeshed in power, it changes the way you look at institutions, including the church. And one of the particularly uh, salient observations of Foucault was 
we're, we're enmeshed in these power relations and the role that knowledge has and who is the, the, the bearer or teacher of knowledge has an extraordinary influence in the way that power is yielded. And, you know, I've been in the church a long time. I've been uh, like Peter on um, senior leadership teams. I've worked with a range of bishops and archbishops. And it, it just struck me that often it, it's not that so much within the church that there are a whole lot of tyrants. I mean, there are a few tyrants. I can name them, but um, it's more that there's a system that develops a culture of deference, which means that some people, a handful of people, are seen as the bearers of knowledge, and it's that kind of it's the kind of hubris that goes with that that believing that I have the special knowledge, whether it's an Anglican church or a Pentecostal church, it doesn't really matter, which often generates. Uh, at the least acts of bullying and at worst um, uh, ma- major situations of injustice and oppression. So Foucault, in a sense, gave me a fresh lens to look at a familiar institution in a new way. You do uh, write about the the need to liberate the church from a sovereign power model of leadership, which is, uh, I guess, what you're describing there. To unpack it a bit more, what is what is a sovereign power model? Look, an, an extreme example would be, you know, with the Reformation, Henry VIII, he takes over the church, uh, he wants a divorce, he wants wants the money from the monasteries, and uh, he, as, as a king, he acts in, as a king in a king-like manner, not only in relationship to his uh, nation, but also uh, in relationship to the church. I mean, he initially is the, the head of the church. And uh, in the first uh, century or two in the Anglican church, as the, the new understanding of Anglicanism is emerging, uh, bishops themselves are caught up in trying to uh, justify their own position and discover a new source of authority. And uh, unfortunately, and this is not just the Anglican Church, often what people revert to uh, under pressure is is a kind of authoritarian way of operating. And so the metaphor of the, the monarchy or the king uh, is an apt one, which you'll find uh, in most cultures, uh, in, in most democracies, you'll see that that's, that's, not the, that's the default position for how particularly men uh, rule organisations is as in monarchies. So a simple example might be, as I said, it's not just the Anglican Church. You can be in a, a Pentecostal or a Baptist church, and there'll be the pastor there who'll be the teacher of the faith. And on the surface, it's a congregational system which is democratic. But often that person who is uh, perceived as to have be the bearer of knowledge, the true knowledge, the true interpretation of the biblical text wields the power like, just like a just like a bishop or or a pope so there's the, the monarchical position which is using the metaphor of you know like the king is the default position of a lot of institutions and organizations uh, and in in a sense we have to outgrow that so when we see it happen it's not unusual that's the norm it's interesting that often, I suppose, churches do follow businesses. They follow uh, society in the sense that often pastors can seem more like CEOs or, or even mm. presidents than they can pastors or, or priests. Um, do, do you think that's just the issue of, I guess, church and state being closely together and church following society? Do you think that's how it's occurred? I think you're onto something there. I think that uh, the notion that somehow we're very different from the business world 
uh, overlooks a whole lot of anthropological issues. That is, that human beings get together in groups. How do they? How do they function? How do they operate? What kind of models they do? The strength of the business model is now and then business people actually have, you know, they'll do a 360. They'll bring some other organization to have a fresh look at themselves. And so sometimes businesses lead the way in actually um, uh, cultural change. But often churches who, some, as you said, we, we might emulate businesses, still think that we don't really have power problems, that we don't need a 360 to look at the way uh, that we uh, operate. So in fact... Um, I know uh, a number of business people and a number of businesses who've taken radical steps to change their culture in a way that I haven't seen the church do. Mm. I mean, I, I, I can speak from personal experience. Growing up as a as the son of a pastor, it felt like my dad was the rock star of the church. He was the yeah, yeah. the focal figure, the, the loved guy, and I actually got a little bit of, I suppose, street cred from being the pastor's son to some extent. Um, I was, you know, people would come and ask me questions about faith and, you know, I was a year 10 kid. I had nothing to answer, uh, nothing to answer them with. Um, Can I just chip in on that? Yeah, that, yeah. That's a really important point because when I started writing at the book, it wasn't uh, a case of uh, targeting a few leaders that I had a chip on my shoulder. Th- th- there's a culture and you've, you've touched on that culture where um, there are some terrific bishops and some of them, they don't want to act in the monarchical model. They don't want to act like kings, but often uh, lay people and clergy expect them to be like kings, mm. and so we often defer to them in a way like the rock star. So, so you know, I've sat in uh, in meetings and, and the bishop said, it's oh, it's a sunny day today and there'll be people swooning. Wow, what a brilliant insight. I, would, I wouldn't have thought of that. So, <laughs> so th- 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 there's a cultural thing here of how the default positions of human beings there's one uh, great philosopher judith butler who says we have sovereign fantasies we're looking for the usually the strong man to lead us into the future so it's even hard sometimes for leaders who want to break old cultural patterns to do so because by nature people are compliant and so i think this this brings you in very interestingly into this conversation being a you know in, in traditions before where you wouldn't have been able to be ordained you've come up against this this power this um uh, well, quite a, a, a fierce power, probably against women, in some pretty uh, some pretty rough ways. So I suppose this this rebellion against power has been a, a focal theme of your faith. For uh, rebellion might not be the right word, but this deconstruction of power has been a focal theme. Yeah, I think deconstruction is the right word, and and it is interesting how the cultures do create what Stephen's talking about there. You know, the the culture, the leader can end up trapped themselves in that, regardless of, of how they might want things to be. That because mm. the people want to continue to put them up in that in that king mm. role, uh, so so that creates it. And I guess I've come across um, in, in communities people are sort of acting against themselves in many ways. Women. Uh, find themselves in in marginal roles, but the system is so self-sustaining that it's hard to see a way out of it. Um, and then I guess as coming in as someone who, who hasn't been ordained that long, you know, you have weird conversations with people after ordination that are things like, oh, well, how do I talk to you now? Or, or you know, oh, that means we can't go and chat about it. And you're going to, trying to, to help people to, to see past the those roles that have been so fixed that suddenly that they have to relate to you differently or that suddenly you have a different kind of power that therefore they're, um, that, that puts them in a deferential role, you know, is um, something that is, is a huge challenge for the cultures that are existing in the church. Mm. And the system is, can I pick up your phrase, mm. the system is self-sustaining. Mm. So when I began this venture, because it's t- 
taken a while to, you know, write the book, and I've I've uh, had all sorts of conversations. Uh, one of the things I had to say was it's really about a systemic change. It's not about it's not the case of targeting a couple of individuals. So, so I never, for a thought, uh, uh, for a moment, thought of including some gory stories from my own personal experience, because I didn't want to, in a sense, take away from the systemic nature of the problem. And so, to that end, I wrote uh, about a year ago to uh, the Primate and our Standing Committee, suggesting that this is a topic we ought to explore, especially in the light of the Royal Commission. Mm. where issues of power and hubris have emerged, that it's an issue that we ought to explore. And, in fact, we probably needed some sort of independent organisation to look at our system and how we function. I suppose that when you get into any sort of power like that, you can end up with abuses of power mm. um, pretty quickly. Yeah, I just uh, wanted to sort of bounce off some of what uh, Sue and Stephen have been saying um, in that... The people who, who often are cast as those without power actually often use the system uh, for their own advantage. Mm. Um, it, it's very interesting to sit through an election synod in our tradition and people do want that strong leader and they want that person to enact their agenda. They want to put a strong leader in who will sort of push through something that this group of people actually want to have and at the same time, um, there's a whole lot of people who allow the whole power thing to uh, allow themselves to abrogate any responsibility they have. And it sort of got echoes of the Girardian conversation we had with James Allison um, a few podcasts ago, where there are traditions, the extreme version of, of the mechanism is to be found in some of the cultures who, who elect someone king and um, give them an incredibly good life, um, shower them with riches, all the time setting them up to kill them mm. with the idea that we actually sacrifice the head honcho for the good mm. of all. And you see that often in institutions and in churches where we elect people to be strong leaders, we actually cultivate them to be strong leaders, but as soon as they stop doing exactly what we want them to do, we abandon them or we uh, execute them in at least in a metaphorical way. And so the the whole, I th you know, I think Stephen's concept about power being systemic is really important because otherwise all we're going to do is the animal farm thing of depose the leaders and then mm. put the pigs in charge and, you know, it'll all sort of recreate itself. There are people who who benefit from the with the people there are people who actually benefit from not having power because of the way they play within the power game or they they get power from being powerless if you like it's a it's a really insidious uh, dynamic well having um you know grown up in in a church and and been on governance council of another church in my life as well like i think anyone who's been in or around a church could see some of these power structures at play even at a, a smaller level that there'll be this member of a governance council that pushes this agenda that's trying to get you know the, the pastor or priest to start speaking about this or there'll be someone who's very strictly policing who gets to do the music at a church and and you have all these power structures from the top to the bottom playing quite uh quite fiercely against each other um and i find it uh, just to touch on your point Stephen, i think it's really interesting that that you say um that we've adopted the business model without the, I guess, the accountability that the business world has with it. Um, That's right. There's a veneer. There's a veneer in the church 
which is um, a veneer of piety uh, uh, over the way that we operate. So um, within the history of the church, of course, we believe, and I do, that our leaders are called. And uh, in particular, we started to, uh, centuries ago, start to talk about our leaders, and not just in the Anglican tradition, but other traditions as the pastor or chief shepherd or the, the good shepherd. And out of that, there emerged a culture of obedience. Now, I actually think that the culture of obedience is a very dangerous thing because um, I feel, you know, when I'm working with people in a parish, we're, we're called to be faithful, not obedient. It's, you know, it's a loaded uh, word. So what often happens is if there is a, a, you know, as Peter said, a strong man in control, um, over my 30 years, I've seen some outrageous things done by some of these people. And the, everybody else in the room says nothing. They say nothing. And when you ask them later, why didn't you challenge what you know, the leader said? Oh, we can't do that. He's been called by God. You know, I'm, I'm called to be faithful. Mm. So, so in a way, um, a lot of the problems we have in the church, we're not unique. And in fact, Foucault did uh, studies of, he, he began in uh, psychoanalysis and in, in mental hospitals. So there are similarities with the issues in hospitals, universities and churches, a lot of similarities, but none of those have the veneer of uh, faithfulness and obedience and that the, 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 the church leader has been called by God. So how on earth could you challenge uh, you know, divine calling? In a recent article you wrote, Stephen, you, uh, you listed some of the problems with this model, um, that leaders can struggle with a sense of entitlement, implied omniscience, quasi-expertise, unnecessary secrecy, lack of accountability, and the proliferation of harmful gossip under the semblance of pastoral care. That's right. I thought was a, an outstanding deconstruction <laughs> of, of some of that, and, and I'm sure anyone who has ever been ste- set foot in a church can, can see elements that, that they've experienced. And you do ask the question in the article that you just asked then, how can you challenge somebody who has been called by God? Um, and I want to ask you that question. How can you challenge somebody who has been called by God? Well, over the years, I actually haven't found it too hard, but it's got me into trouble, really. <laughs> so, so because, you know, I feel... We, we, all of us here are called to for, to uh, a life of mutual empowerment and r- mutual enrichment. You know what I mean? And uh, I know Sue and Peter well enough to know that that's the kind of they're the kind of communities we're trying to create, really. And unless we're unless we're open and transparent about issues of power, we will actually undermine that. We won't we won't be able to do that. And that list of things, which I I, I go into great detail uh, in the church. They are, in a sense, the bad fruit of that kind of uh, culture. In the 19th century in the Anglican Church, there was a shift in the way that we treated our leaders. Um, One noted scholar, Peter Knuckles, refers it to as as Episcopal high theory. All of a sudden, we started to talk about our bishops as though they were Christ. There's a a shift in the language that we use. Now, in a sense... uh, we only got away with that because some people wanted it. We we, we deferred to that. We we thought, isn't that that wonderful? So this this sort of network, this culture of deference, this culture of uh, codependence, as counsellors would say, uh, re- really really took um, sped up in the nineteenth century and became entrenched in the twentieth century. So all those things are, are, are classic symptoms of it. So whether it's um, the the use of silence, you go you go to a leader and you pour your heart out, right? This is my problem, and the leader doesn't respond at all. The leader just says, "Well, hmm, I'll think about that," 
and leaves you standing. Now, that, that's a simple example of the kind of lack of mutuality that can emerge in a culture where there's not accountability. Similarly with gossip and all the other things I've listed there. Um, if you're in a culture where everyone, like, like the rock star syndrome, that's a great image. It's very hard not to believe it after a while. And if people keep deferring to you as being the guardian of knowledge or that you've been given the, the, the role of having the final say, you've been entrusted by God to have the final say, there's always a risk then that you start to reserve judgment and reserve decisions. So out of a kind of misplaced faithfulness, uh, there, there's a kind of monopoly of, of what constitutes knowledge and, and also in some areas a false sense of expertise. Now, I don't think this happens in a, in a calculated manner. I, I, I don't see Machiavellian leaders operating. It's partly a cultural thing and bit by bit there's, there's a kind of a seduction and that's where we need not simply accountability, but I, but I all think that all leaders ought to do uh, some basic training in family systems theory to learn about things like codependency, to mm. learn about the, the family scripts that they have, which we then bring into the workplace. Uh, one of the best things I ever did in my life was a year's family therapy many years ago. It was my Woody Allen year. And uh, <laughs> it, it was really beneficial because I could see the baggage I had carried from my past into my workplace now, I've suggested that over the years to the leaders about this might be a useful technique, but it wasn't met with enthusiasm. And it wasn't because the leaders in that instance were, um, uh, uh, once again, Machiavellian tyrants. It, it, they couldn't see the relevance of it. They couldn't see the connection. And that's where our culture, in a sense, has insulated our leaders. Uh, I just want to pick up on the codependency thing you, you mentioned in there, because it does seem to be quite clear that that the congregation needs their church leader to be this, um, you know, uh, God-ordained, uh, flawless character, just as much as the church leader needs to be seen by the congregation as that. So it is a very codependent oh, model. Absolutely. Um, that, that, that can be quite unhealthy. And that's why I thought it was so interesting. One of my first times at the cathedral, Peter, you spoke and you, you shared a, a struggle from your own life and you shared it quite vulnerably. And I'd never experienced that in a church context before of the church leader suggesting that they might have actually struggled and that it wasn't all great now. Um, is that a way you have found to, I guess, try to subvert that model of, and, and get around any any pushing towards the the ego that can sometimes be driven on to, to church leaders? Um, that's a good, good, very good question. Um, I, I think first and foremost, um, yes, one does have to be seen as a human being, and I have to say that as as strange as it sounds, um, being a divorced person is. Um, enabled my ministry in a way that I find almost bizarre but um, but liberating. Um, there's a sense in which um, you know, my, my story has a, has a very sort of public disruption in it that um, means I'm not perfect, you know, manifestly not perfect. So that, that actually is a sort of a bizarre gift really. Um, but I think I think first and foremost the the call in to, to leadership in these situations is to ensure that we understand who we are first and foremost. That you know, our our church has a bit of a flaw in that it says that it believes in the three orders of ministry, when in fact there are four. Um, the the three that we talk about are priest, deacon, and uh, bishop, but the 
the fourth one is the baptized, the laity, and in fact it's the first order of ministry. It's the most important one. It's the one on which everything else is based. And I think if if congregations start with that idea that we are baptized people and that through our baptism comes authority and the call, you know, the call is the call is to everyone and that other calls are specialist narrow callings that are expressions of the first and that, that all the other callings are dependent on the first, it, it inverts the pyramid, if you like. It actually says that the most important thing to be in this life is a baptised person. Can you just unpack what you mean by a baptised person there a little bit? Like, apart sure. from the literal truth of you have been baptised, what yes. does that, that mean? Well, it means, it means to be someone who is living into what it is to be baptised, and that is to understand the idea that you are a Christ, which is why one of the beautiful things about the Anglican tradition is we use the term christening about baptism in an interchangeable way with the word baptism, and that the word christening implies that in the ceremony you are actually acknowledged as being a Christ, a chosen one, a called person, and that you are it, in that there's not going to be another one of you. And that if you don't, if you don't execute your ministry, using your particular set of gifts, skills, talents, personality. If, that, if you don't do that, then the whole of the creation will be robbed of that experience. Can I just say too, what the picture that Peter's painted the last five minutes there, in a sense that's the aim of my book, right? Mm. So, so the interesting juicy bits are, you know, what leaders did and what they, you know, this, the, I mean there's nothing scurrilous in the book, it's an academic book, but... But that's the kind of interesting bit. But the upshot is the empowerment of everyone. And uh, that's why I've resisted the temptation to focus on individuals that I might have have a, a grudge with or something because it's really about revamping the whole church. And in the last 10 or 20 years in the Anglican tradition, but also in other traditions in Australia, uh, the, the church in the West is in decline. And whilst there is a, a growth in uh, fundamentalist churches, the mainstream church is really struggling. So I actually think then that addressing the issues of power in a systemic manner with the aim of empowering the baptised, with the aim of helping people discover their, their God-given gifts is absolutely urgent. In other words, I, I don't see what the sort of stuff I've been working on as an academic curio that we'll get round. It's ultimately about the empowerment of the baptised. Some time ago, actually, Stephen, I, I caught up with a friend um, uh, who, who's at a different church to discuss some of the problems I'd been having with a pastor at the church I was at at the time. And before I could start speaking, my friend started sharing the problems they'd been having with their pastor at their church, which were largely quite similar to the problems I was mm. about to express. And I did have that thought that, yes, as you've been saying, so this is a systemic thing the, that the individual cases are just uh, symptoms, I guess, yeah. rather than the, the disease itself. Do you think, first one to you, sir, I mean, as someone who, who is, you know, ordained now, you, you, you're expected to fulfill, I guess, a bunch of roles of being uh, a shepherd of sorts, of being wise, in some cases being, a, you know, this authoritarian leader. Do you feel we, we expect far too much of church leaders or that the expectations are just, are just misplaced? I think we get it 
community wrong when when we place someone up on a pedestal and what Stephen's describing and, and what Peter's describing about living into your baptised identity, living, you know, that that's half of the story is being who you were created to be mm. and the other half is how you live into that identity in community. And I, I really like people who use the term kingdom. You know, Jesus came to establish the, the kingdom of God, but if we lose the G, then we lose the masculine kind of control and we also lose the idea of the crown or the, the headship that way, you know, and have the, the, the kingdom, the idea of, of our lived identity in community is, is, is the aim of what we're going for, the, that, that sort of community of baptised believers. And I think, too, when we talk about leadership and the pressure we might put on leaders, the, you know, if you look at leadership in isolation, you get it wrong. Mm. You have to always evaluate leadership in terms of the membership too. And that's where we think about, unless you take into account things like the codependencies you know, and, and stuff like that, you can't actually work out what it means to be a leader. It's like, uh, I think I've heard someone say once, it's like trying to analyse clapping while only looking at the left hand. You, know, yeah. you, you need to actually take, take that whole picture into consideration. You know? So when we think about what roles we are given mm. and how we place expectations, then we need to also look at the expectations on the membership. It's a great point because so often a church might or a congregation might think their problems are with the pastor or the priest. Mm. They will call a new pastor or priest and then in a few years' time realize they're having the exact same problems. And how could this be? We've made a mistake again. Um, scapegoat, scapegoat, <laughs> scapegoat. <laughs> exactly. So um, I, I suppose this is where we will move, Stephen, to the the uh, optimism of this, mm. the, the hope of this. I mean, as you call it, imagining the church as an open space of freedom, um, the, the the way this can look different. Okay. What what do you mean by that that phrase, imagining the church as an open space of freedom? Well, at the moment, um, if, if the dominant metaphor historically has been uh, the monarchy or kingship, and whether that's Anglican, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant or Pentecostal, uh, there, there's a certain cu- cultural archetype that we revert to, especially in the West. Then the dominant uh, metaphor or image for the church is a building, and the uh, it, it go, goes back to a German word and a Scottish word that we we associate when we think of church, we think of a building. But the initial understanding of the church was a space, and um, the Apostle Paul, who you know he's he's copped some baggage over recent years. But he's also been rediscovered, actually, by a lot of uh, secular philosophers in recent years because of his some insights. And this particular one is an absolutely brilliant insight that in in Athenian democracy in the fifth and sixth centuries BC, whilst the system wasn't perfect, it was largely for male a male elite. There was what they call an a, an open space where people could gather. The ecclesia. It's an open public space. In fact, it had a committee. They had agendas. Uh, it was, it's really fascinating stuff. But in that open space, pe- people could speak the truth. In fact, they were encouraged to speak the truth to each other. So it was very much a political space of democracy. And whilst, as I said, it needed to be more inclusive over the years, it was a great concept. Paul took a political concept in Ecclesia and then used it to describe the early church. So, for example, in Galatians and Corinthians, Paul talks talks about the ecclesia, that the church is this open space where all shapes and sizes are welcome. And so, for example, in the letter to the Galatians, if, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you'll think, oh, it's in, it, you know, it's all about uh, nice Christians. 
Galatians was dealing with issues of racial prejudice. The, the Galatians were probably of Celtic extract. They were referred to by the Romans as the barbarians. And Paul comes in there and says to the Jews and Christ, the, the Greeks, stop your squabbling. In Christ, even the barbarians are included in this open space. So uh, wonderful the idea of open space sends a bit, you know, new age, trinity, 21st century. But Ecclesia, you know, the, the ancients were smart and they recognised that rather than a building, it's an open space in which people can congregate was, was the nature of the church. And so it's actually quite, um, it's quite a radical, Paul's often uh, portrayed in some ways as conservative, but this was quite a radical gesture to think of uh, church as a space with no boundaries in which all are included. The interesting thing is he, uh, in Galatians, he takes that wonderful text in Christ there's neither uh, male nor female, sorry, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female. Now that is actually from an early baptism liturgy. Peter was mentioning baptism before. So in the first 10 or 20 years after the time of Jesus, they were using that text in baptismal services to say you're all in. Mm. There are no boundaries. Whether you're gay or straight, barbarian or Greek or whatever, Male or female, you're all in. That's the nature of the Christian space. And Paul takes that and makes that the centrepiece of the letter of the Galatians. Radical stuff, really. So how does the, the church leader look different in that space? Because it's obviously what you've described there is quite a different space to how many people would understand church. But how does the role of the church leader look different? Well, I think you are referring to it a bit before about uh, life in uh, this cathedral in that Peter and Sue are... Uh, you know, the, there are the signs of the monarchy. You know, the, the, the architecture of a neo-Gothic cathedral reflects that kind of monarchical or transcendent theology. But the practice of the people and the cathedral chapter here doesn't. So in a sense, you have to, we live in tension with certain things. So there's a, there's a historic um, uh, legacy that we've all got, and I, I, ha I experienced that in my parish. But we learn to engage people uh, like Peter said, we're, we're, we, we are open about ourselves. We don't try and pretend that we're any superior or better. We share something of our humanity. We build relationships. We work together. So in many ways, how do we do it? A lot of it is actually about uh, how we treat people and how we treat each other. It's a, it, it, in the end, we, we, uh, we get the best of our legacy by working the best we can with others in a way that is respectful and, and open and inclusive. So... Um, I know it, it sounds a bit vague, but it's, it's all about relationships. It's creating a new set of relationships. And in that context, too, it takes a bit of the pressure off us as leaders. Rather than being the fount of wisdom, you know, the exclusive bearer of knowledge, the one that has to make the hard call, um, our leadership is a, is a more nuanced thing of, of being human. Um, sometimes, sometimes we'll have to make a hard call, but often it's more the encourager or facilitator. I don't like that word, but you, you know what I mean? We, we facilitate and enable, and enable is probably a better word. The church, I mean, the church actually has all the building blocks it needs for this alternate way of living. And the most important building blocks are the two great sacraments that we've held so precious and so dear for the whole of our history. It's baptism, which actually means that we're all the same, we're all one, and that you know, Stephen's referred to that. And then there's the Eucharist. Mm. And 
I think um, the more we uh, allow our leaders to be leaders of Eucharistic communities, then the rest of it will follow. You know, the, the Eucharist is this amazing experience where it looks like there's someone leading it, but really that person is only holding the open space that's, that Stephen was referring to before, and in that space there's a whole lot of stuff that is happening that all sorts of people are part of, which is why here we don't use the terms, term celebrant for the priest, because the priest is simply presiding over the assembly and the assembly the assembly celebrates the Eucharist and for it to happen uh, at its best you have bits of the liturgy that the priest does and bits of the liturgy that the deacon does and bits of the liturgy that the people do and together we together we make Eucharist we are, and we are this amazing community where, you know, at the heart of that celebration is that statement, we are the body of Christ. And we all share the greeting of peace one with another. And I think if um, we really honour those two beautiful building blocks that have been at the heart of church forever, um, then the rest of it flows. A Eucharistic community in a building with the doors open, so that, and you know, our tradition here is as we offer the bread and the wine at the, at, at the invitation, we say, This is the Lord's table. All who seek God's mercy are welcome. There's, a, there's an irony there too with power, in that um, I agree with everything that uh, Peter Ainsu have said. There's an irony, is that, um, and that's the issue of trust. So that um, often the, the default position is the monarchical position, which we see in businesses and in churches, where I'm, I'm going to be the strong leader. I've got to make the hard call. And it can get a bit perverse too, where sometimes opposition is seen as a vindication of having to make the hard call. You know, everyone's against me, so this is, it's up to me. The interesting thing is that as, as we create communities where there's mutual empowerment, that are inclusive and open, we build up trust. And the funny thing is, then when push comes to shove, when there are critical issues, people will defer to you in a really healthy way and say, Sir, what do you think we should do in this case? And intuitively you'll know it is the right time to give an initiative or to give a direction. But it's not coming out of um, uh, like an authoritarian space. It's coming out of a position of trust and regard that recognises your gift as leadership. And, and, and it, it just kind of happens in a way that doesn't need to be regulated because there's mutual trust. Yeah. I think there's also th that what you're describing happens a lot more often where you have women in leadership as well, having been in, mm. in churches where you don't have, I think that the pressure for the, the male priest pastor to be be the one who has is has all knowledge and um, has to make all the decisions suddenly I think and there's people have a, a natural default there still is a natural default to male authority I, you know I come across it everywhere still and I think when you have women in leadership suddenly it, it's it's like a self-questioning thing it subverts straight naturally it subverts the authority line and so people um, start to go because they don't necessarily defer naturally to a woman and so they have to find new and creative ways of being in community together. Um, and I think it, it, it just just the presence of both men and women in leadership will do that naturally. Yeah, huge huge shifts in the culture of the church since we started ordaining women. It's, it really has 
made a huge difference. And more and more of the women too, the ne- this sort of current generation, there have been several waves, are feeling more comfortable to, to be themselves rather than to emulate what the blokes are doing. Mm. Uh, because, you know, and I don't, I don't say that unsympathetically, the, the pressures to conform to the masculine model of decision-making, the strong man, you know, the, the independent, resolute, but keep, keep the cards to yourself model are enormous. But I feel the last five or ten years there's a new generation coming through and, and they've benefited from others who've gone before them who are who are feeling more comfortable in their own skin. And I, I think a lot of people are saying, wow, isn't this refreshing? <laughs> so, it, look, if, if people are listening to this and they are in a position of leadership in a church or in a community, uh, like what we're, what you're proposing really is a different way of viewing leadership. Would you say it's a... It's important to to promote vulnerability and authenticity over, I guess, authority and image. Is that yeah, kind of a- yeah, all, all those uh, qualities, and it's also too about having a conversation. Like it's the, the four of us, are, you know, having a, a candid conversation here, and I think um, as a national church, we need to have a candid conversation about how we are going to be the church. There are major crises. There's the rise of fundamentalism within our own church. There are churches struggling with um, uh, finances. Uh, there's uncertainty about what it means to be the church in the 21st century. And I think that there needs to be a, a national conversation about what it means to be the church. And a lot of the issues we've touched on today about um, you know, the, the traditions of the church, uh, the sacraments, uh, the ecclesia, humanity, vulnerability, community, all those things ought to be grist for the mill. So I'm not pretending that there's a... I don't think there is a simple outcome. My concern has been is that I don't feel that there's a an open or transparent discussion about the things that really matter. So you're not going to get to this transformation overnight just deciding it. You have to start the, the open conversation, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's going to... Whilst it has to be a conversation for everyone... It probably will require from, in our institution, some of our bishops to be very courageous um, and, so, and, and to be transparent about, uh, in order that they can trigger the conversation too. They're in key positions to trigger an important conversation. Now, we all know there are, you know, there's some terrific bishops around the place, but they're also caught up in a culture. Uh, the, the College of Bishops itself is a kind of... Um, reinforcing culture that reinforces a lot of the things that we have already expressed concerns about but i do think there needs to be a national conversation and it's not simply about some sort of academic issue in power it's about what it means to be the church in the 21st century i i can as you're saying this i can even think to to how much this covers the whole spectrum of the church how i've walked into churches before and felt at the bottom of the rung or the bottom rung of power in this in this place and knowing that if i stayed there for a year perhaps i would be a volunteer you know in the kitchen and then suddenly i'm up a step yeah. and i stayed a bit more and now i'm running the rosters for the kitchen and now i'm up another step and and actually the church becomes this ladder this this ladder of power that you climb yeah. just like you do in any organization in any business and I suppose this is this is a, a completely subvertive model where, you know, the, the the highest bishop in the country is no higher on any high level of power than uh, any member of any congregation. And anyway, too, these are these are grassroots issues too, because uh, priests and pastors struggle with these things all the time. There are lots of really good priests and pastors out there who go into communities who want to do all the kind of stuff that we're talking about but they're up against years and years of deference to the strong man. So in a way, the conversation that I'm envisaging 
has both macro and micro implications for how we're the church because I think there are a lot of really good people on the ground trying to do the right thing who could do with some uh, transparent and compassionate support. It's interesting you say that because I know, Peter, as much as you would be determined not to be put on a pedestal, because you do have a little bit of a, an image, you know, having been in the media a bit um, and being the, the dean of, of this uh, cathedral, people would attempt to put you on a pedestal all the time. I mean, I think I probably have been guilty in my time of knowing you of putting you on a pedestal. How do you, how do you say to people, don't put me on a pedestal? How do you stop that occurring? Hmm, what a question. Um <clears throat> Well, I don't think you can attend to what other people do. Um, um, the thing that I spend most more time thinking about for myself is is um, what's that doing to me and the seduction that goes with it. Um, it's very seductive stuff. Um, I think I think the vulnerability is part of the answer. It's also it's also talking um, talking up the fact that leadership is a shared thing so you know, in cathedral council over the years we've actually shared uh, articles about shared leadership um, different people offer leadership in different ways in the cathedral council and we seek to affirm the other leaders who um, are at work in the community um, and it really is about just making sure or, or trying to make sure because seduction is very subtle um, that one just doesn't buy into it it's very very it's it's tough stuff and you know we we it really just reminds us have how the call of the church is to be countercultural and how difficult mm. being countercultural is yeah you know, we live we live in a time when the cult of the strong man is hopefully in its last hurrah, but it is at the present time uh, exercising its muscle in the most bizarre ways. Donald Trump being the clearest, most bizarre um, you know, expression of it. Um, he talks about being strong. He talks about America becoming great. And we've, we've got manifestations of this idea of strength mm. at, a na at national level, personal level, corporate level. Um, it, it is insidious and very powerful model. Um, I think it's actually reached the end of its, its – I think it's at its use-by date, and this is, these are the death throes. But there could be some really bloody conflicts come out of – the last exercise of it and I think the church just really needs to understand that the depth of the call that comes to us in baptism that you know neither male nor female slave nor free uh, is a constant call those three uh, differences were the three great separations of humanity in the day that Paul wrote them they were the three really big divisions of what have how people viewed humanity and so the challenge for us in our day is to ask what are the what are the three great divisions of humanity in our time that we need to um, just as clearly say this does not hold in this community and we have to articulate those divisions and work out how we live a countercultural life mm. can i just pick up donald trump for a second which a lot of people would like to. And um, 
yes. and put him somewhere. As, but long, as <laughs> long as you take him with you. Yeah. Yes, that's Richard, right. Richard Rorty was a fabulous American philosopher, and he wrote in the 70s. He warned America, you know, the American philosopher, he warned in the 70s, he said, be very careful that in the decades to come, a strong man, he used the phrase, a strong man comes to run this country uh, because we'll pay an enormous price. Now, um, my concern is, and you only have to look at Vladimir Putin as another strong man, that there is a kind of um, uh, a resurgence of the right, political right, which is very masculine in its style. And what happens in a crisis is that often people revert to the strong man. And I think that's where our church is at a crisis point now because for all the practical reasons which we've alluded to, we, we are in a crisis. So we either have a transparent, open, compassionate discussion about the crisis or we man up. And there are already pressures within our church in the last 10 or 15 years to conform that we have the same beliefs, the same speech, the same practice. And that's a classic sign, uh, pressures to conform, especially in a tradition that is uh, honoured diversity. The classic sign to conform is is often a sign of people uh, struggling to deal with a crisis. So the, the Donald Trump temptation is always there, but we have a different calling. It is interesting Trump has come up here because I think that has put power in the spotlight mm. societally more than it has been uh, perhaps for some time. People are examining power to some extent and, and particularly they're getting power just for the sake of having power um, for no other reason. With this new way of thinking, if we were to look at it culturally and societally outside of just the church for a second, Stephen, what what could a presidency look like under this model of power? Look, I think th- these are societal um, issues. And um, there's a, a globally, not only are there individuals like Trump and, and Putin, but also um, uh, public discourse, public debate is being diminished. And, um, y- you know, uh, there have been some studies done uh, in, in a number of countries where in so-called democracies, people are having less and less opportunity to have their say. So, so. Uh, the irony is I actually think it's an opportunity for the church to give a lead. We we ought to be saying, well, look, we've had a good look at our organisation. Um, we've learnt from the Royal Commission that we got power issues dreadfully wrong. Mm-hmm. We've had a, a real close look at ourselves. This is a new model of leadership we are now endorsing and the and the world needs to think about other models of, of, of leadership. So, so often we've been um, quite defensive about things. We've said, oh, you know, we feel awful about it, but we don't want to talk about it. My feeling is that we are now in a position to actually give a lead in the wider community and earn some, re-earn some credibility uh, on issues of leadership because um, globally there are some, some real concerns about uh, the nature of democracy and participation in uh, many countries. So uh, le- leadership is a big ticket item and, and we should learn from our experiences and our failures and see if we can contribute to that debate. It is something quite tribalistic, the who can yell the loudest um, model of leadership. Who's going to be the, the biggest, the strongest, the loudest, the richest? Oh. Um, and again, as, as has come up in, in this podcast all the time, the countercultural way of going the other way. Instead of being louder, who can be the, the maybe the quietest? Who can be the the most content, not the most striving? Um Sometimes this stuff does feel a bit like pie in the sky thinking, though. It feels quite idealistic. Is this actually, when it is so seemingly against the human nature to to be more, to be more significant, to want more, to strive for more, 
do you do you believe this sort of a um uh, a reimagining is is seriously achievable? Well, I don't think I think it's the only option really because at the moment, if you look at ecological issues, uh, you know, globally, uh, issues around violence are getting more and more. Violence is on the increase. Uh, violence has become more technical. Uh, people are more uh, they're able to press a button and a drone flies over. They don't now talk about um, uh, uh, people targets. They talk about areas. Right? It's become more impersonal. So, so there are a whole range of things: violence, war. Uh, ecology, unless there's a reimagining, I think we're up the creek. You know, I think, mm. I think, I think, you know, you you look at what's happening with the, the whole plastic bag thing now, and and you know, a, a place bigger than Texas in the middle of the ocean where the plastic bags have accumulated. You know, there are such important issues. So unless it begins with a reimagining, and that you know, Peter's talked about our our tradition. We're in the tradition of imagination. You know, the spirit and the imagination are really important linked. And okay, we. We won't have the proficiency to provide necessarily technical or political answers, but we can talk about imagination and creativity, and 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 a kind of nuanced idealism. So so there are no simple solutions, but I think I, I think actually people would welcome um, you know a carefully thought out uh, alternative uh, vision. But it, but that's second. The first bit is that we have to show the wider community we've done our homework, we've looked at ourselves. And we've asked ourselves some really hard questions about what it means to be the church and our and, and our misuse of power. So to to hopefully find meaningful change, to hopefully you know start the process of of really transforming this, um, you know, so people don't just uh, I guess listen to another podcast that they feel like yes, I completely agree, but I don't know what to do with this. Hmm. Would you say as people go into their whether it's their you know communities publicly or their church community or whatever it might be, that that they go in trying to subvert their own methods of, of power or trying to examine their own thinking what what's a practical way we can we can try to move in this direction look I think I know from uh, you've got to shop around I think basically we can't do these things solo and 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 we live and breathe and grow in community so my advice would be if people feel uh, positively inspired find a community of people that share your vision and and commit yourself to it. Don't see don't see it as another club, you know, where I'll, I'll come on the night that suits me. And w- and whether it's the locust local uh, uh, Buddhist community in New Farm or the cathedral in the middle of the city, or you know the ec- ecological group at the Gap, it doesn't matter really, because uh, my view of uh, faith and the Holy Spirit is bigger than the church building. Mm. And and I think we have to really develop new connections and new uh, friendships to work on these issues. I mean, you know, the ecology and the issues of uh, refugees, most Australians are very sympathetic to those things, but we've lost the capacity to um, work together collaboratively at that kind of grassroots level. I just said, I think there are a lot of signs of hope of, of people who are collaborating at the mm. grassroots level, mm. small groups of people. And, and I, th- I agree with Stephen, you know, the, 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 the church is so much wider than its walls and people where they find their space together. And I was just at a community meeting last night where, you know, a couple of hundred people are gathering together to protest high rises that are going up in a retirement village that were that is contrary to the council plans that, that ask for one or two level maximum, that's in the town planning, and for green spaces. And these people are putting in their own money. They've been working for three years solidly on on 
um, putting in submissions to council, and they're going the extra mile now. Like, and and the the weariness of some people is there, but also so was that tangible community support. You know, and I think when we talk about, um, and that's a really stark example of the opposite to the strongman type leadership. And I, I think the, the strongman's falling over all over the place. And so new small communities are are coming up. And, and, and thank God, because I, you know, that I don't have to be that charismatic leader, you know, that we actually, people are rediscovering the power of we all over the place. And uh, um, Sue was sharing the other day, just, uh, you know, We've we've now got twenty people coming on a Tuesday night to our meditation group. Mm. Now, what a sign of people being prepared to be together without any power games, because <laughs> to sit in silence together, and we've had some really beautiful feedback over the last few days about what it means for people to do that together. So there there is a little hope-filled community of people who are discovering the presence of the Holy Spirit, who are discovering their essential equality without anyone having to do anything. And out of little groups like that, uh, there's a real empowerment that comes from that sort of shared experience that enables people to find who they are, what is their ministry, what am I being asked to do, I've got this group of people who have my back without it, without needing any sophisticated sort of mechanisms or processes or programs. There's a sense of belonging. And from that, um, huge, huge transformation can come. And so and I think that's the future. I mean, I think we look, because of the strongman culture, we look for big solutions. Mm. Whereas I think, I think, the solutions come from small groups of people. They grow in organic ways. They emerge in ways that really take us by surprise. I mean, who would have thought that you'd have 20 people who would be prepared to drive, as Sue said? Who'd, who'd, you, who'd have thought that you'd have 20 people who are prepared to drive on a Tuesday night to sit around together for an hour, do nothing and go home? <laughs> <laughs> but now, for people to do that in our culture, which is about go home, stay home, lock the doors... Um, be involved in things that do stuff. For people to do that, that means that 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 is a seed of equality. It's truly egalitarian. There's no one, there is no holder of the wisdom. There's no teacher of the faith. But there's a group of people who are sitting in the presence Mm. and being transformed by the presence and through that process are learning so much about themselves and what it is to belong mm. so i'm 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 constantly i'm i am an inveterate optimist always have been but i actually see signs of hope everywhere which I, is why i talk about donald trump being expression of the last hurrah of the strong man i actually think that the model is so desperate it is so it has so little credibility that now it has to express itself in the form of the clown. Mm. Yes. It is self-mocking. It is self. It is deconstructing itself. I mean, the man who is claiming to make America great again has done more to diminish the presence, the credibility, and the influence of America in his eleven months as the president of the of the U.S. than all the Russian leaders over the last 50 years have managed to do. 
And so it's deconstructing itself. And those of us who imagine that it could be different need to make sure that we're not just entering into the same game, opposing them using the same techniques, but we're actually growing these cells of transformation, or as Meg Wheatley calls them, islands of sanity (laughs) in a world that is really allowing the celebrities to be in charge. Let me say something nice about young people. Um, I've, I've had a ball in, over the years working with uh, university students. I think it's a great age group, really savvy and open. And I've found 90% of them remarkably open and energetic. And uh, recently I was speaking at a university college and I, I called upon them to, to start the revolution, a new revolution of critical thinking and pursuing things. And they responded very well to that. And, it, and so uh, my hunch is... Um, you know, in some ways, people my era, we're, we're kind of become a bit captive to a lot of this stuff. We can see it, but there are parts of it we can't see. You know what I mean? Because we're part of it. And I think that there's some terrific young people in our country. I've met a lot of them, really bright and idealistic and, and passionate. And um, I think it's up to them to give a lead and not wait around for all the old farts to do something. Because in a way, we're, ca- you know, we're captive. You don't have to look at our political system to see that we've become captive to a certain way of doing politics. And I think there's some terrific young people in our country who are bright, spiritual, idealistic. And I'd really just encourage them to to do some of this collaboration, this community building, join existing groups and subvert them or create new ones. Because in many, I mean, to state the obvious, they've got a lot at stake, (laughs) you know, the next 40 or 50 years. Mm. But I do think that they have a freshness and a, and a perspective on things that that they can see things more clearly in some ways. Okay, they may lack in some areas a certain wisdom or sophistication, but there's a freshness of perspective and energy that they have, which we haven't. So I, I really hope that um, we see a kind of quiet, youthful revolution over the next five or ten years. It's interesting. I was chatting to a friend recently who mentioned... Um their frustration that they feel like the church has just often seen Jesus as a new king in the same kingdom um, instead Mm. of a whole new kingdom, a whole new way of viewing the kingdom. And I love that you mentioned the meditation group, Peter. I mean, I was there on on Tuesday night and what I was quite moved by was the fact that there was no, there seemed to be, from my position, no power at all really balanced in that room. Every single person was as as equal and as uh, belonging as every person sitting next to them. And, um, no, I, th- I think this has been an outstanding conversation. I think it provides a very hopeful path forward. And uh, Stephen, thank you so much for your oh, time. Thank you, Dom. And uh, the book is The Church Authority and Foucault by Dr. Stephen Ogden. Uh, got it right at the end there. <laughs> um, and uh, make sure you pick it up and, uh, and we look forward to, to the revolution. C- comes out in paperback next year. <laughs> <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs>